Well, good morning, Crossing. How's everybody today? Great to see you. Great to be in snowy Las Vegas with you today. Hey, how about we give a big welcome to everybody joining us on the other side of the camera and the Crossing family at the Southeast Campus and all the microsites that are out there. Love you guys. Midtown is coming. That's so cool. And I love this church. Uh, I love your pastor. Isn't Shane like the best? And uh, he is. And I love coming to the Crossing to speak. On, I'm just being honest. This is one of my favorite churches to speak at, one of my all-time favorite places to speak. I get asked to speak in a lot of places. Nobody ever asked me back to speak. You invite me back. And so I'm grateful. So uh, many of you know how exhausted you are at the end of a week, how ready you are for the weekend, which is why people say, thank God it's Friday, right? But like a lot of other people in Vegas, I work on weekends. And so my week typically ends on Sunday after preaching four services, and that's why I'm a thank God it's Sunday kind of person. And uh, Sunday afternoon and Monday is kind of like my weekend, and I'm pretty wiped out after a busy week of sermon prep and preaching four times. And so Sunday afternoon, I typically, I like to veg. And a while back, I came home on Sunday afternoon, turned on the TV, started channel surfing a little bit. And USA Network was having one of their theme weekends of movies. And it was one of their more educational and intellectual series of programs. It was Sylvester Stallone movies all weekend long. <laughs> and when I turned the TV on, one of the Rambo movies was on. And I mean, poor Sylvester Stallone could not keep his shirt on. It just kept getting ripped off. He would get into fights, and he would get dragged under vehicles, and he would get shot at and exploded. And the poor guy couldn't keep his shirt on, which I guess in no way distinguishes it from any other Sylvester Stallone movie. But I'm watching this, and my wife Barbara walks in the room, and she goes, Ooh, what are you watching? And I said, It's Rambo with Sylvester Stallone. It's awesome. And she just goes, ugh, I can't stand movies like that. And I said, why not? And she said, I, I guess it's because I've never been attracted to well-built men. <laughs> Does the word disappointment ever come into your life? Are you ever disappointed by life? Are you ever disappointed by circumstances, by something someone says to you? Every one of us knows what it is to feel disappointment. It's universal. Disappointment with something, some situation, with someone. Your, your team didn't get the win. You didn't get the part. You didn't pass the test. You didn't get the job. You, you didn't make the sale. Life is full of broken dreams. But disappointment like goes to a whole nother level when your disappointment is with God. When it feels like God isn't listening anymore. When it seems as though God has abandoned you or just walked away and he's silent. I know many great committed followers of Jesus who dream to be linked together in a Christian marriage with a man or a woman who shares their spiritual priorities. And so they've been waiting and they've been doing all the things they ought to be doing and being in the right places and not in the wrong places and, and praying. And they may be even hanging around the gathering areas after church today thinking, this may be the day. But right now they're living with a broken dream. I know some married people who are waiting for God to come and heal their marriage. 
waiting for God to make it better, and they've been trying and they've been praying, but right now they're living a broken dream. I know a lot of people who are waiting for God to do something in their physical bodies or in the physical body of someone that they love, waiting for God to bring a healing, and, and they're living with a broken dream. For some of you, the broken dream was a childhood that was so much less than you would have hoped for. Or the broken dream may have been a financial collapse that, that led to too much pressure on everything else, and your life collapsed. I know in recent weeks you've been in this series called The Goat, the greatest of all time. And today I want to focus on how Jesus, the greatest of all time, restores broken dreams. And I want to unpack and apply a passage in John chapter 11 where a couple of friends of Jesus are dealing with a broken dream. And before we jump into John chapter 11, if I could, I want to tell you a little bit about my own story. I grew up in a small Midwest town in central Illinois. And my folks decided early on in their marriage they were going to keep their family small in order to give their kids a lot of opportunity, so they stopped after having six kids. <laughs> and uh, I was number six. Actually, after having number five, they decided that their family was complete and they sold the crib, the high chair, all the baby gear. But five years later, Gene Bryant came bouncing into their lives as the bonus baby. And uh, some may say, you know, I was the mistake. I always told mom and dad that I was the unexpected blessing. And uh, I know we all come from different kinds of family backgrounds and different circumstances, different family of origin stories. And some of you, for reasons I don't understand, you had very difficult childhoods. But I was one of those fortunate kids who grew up with a mom and dad that marked my life in incredibly positive ways. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and while some pastor's kids resent that, not me, because my dad was the real deal. He was the same guy at home that he was in public. And I know this is going to sound weird to some of you. You know, a lot of kids grow up playing house or playing doctor or something like that. But, but we grew up at our house playing church. And, uh, yeah, we'd pretend to have our own little church service in the living room. I have three older sisters, and they'd do a little worship team, you know. And then uh, my, one of my brothers would pray, and I'd give the sermon. And then we'd hit mom or dad four or five times with the offering plate before they realized... <laughs> Well, it was a very profitable experience for us growing up. My dad, as a pastor, never made a great deal of money, but he was always very generous, and he was determined that he would make some sacrifices in order to build significant memories for his kids. And so, since the year of my birth, I have vacationed every summer at a cabin on a beautiful lake uh, in Park Rapids, Minnesota. It's in northern Minnesota. And the way that tradition started is back in the 50s, my dad got together with two other uh, financially challenged buddy, pastor friends of his, and they pooled their resources and they bought together two lakefront lots on a beautiful lake. They paid $250 a piece for those lots. It ended up being a pretty good investment, actually. And uh, then they were so poor, they, they built board by board a cabin. They spent $500 on a cabin kit, board by board, nail by nail, for their families to share together. And they were so poor, I'm not making this up, they couldn't afford a level. And to be honest with you, that old cabin looks like it was built by three pastors who couldn't afford a level. <laughs> for years, the only running water we had was when somebody would yell, water, and one of us kids would run out back with a bucket and we would hand pump the water into a bucket. The only bathroom we had was an outhouse, a little building out behind the cabin, you know, over a hole in the, how many of you know what an outhouse is? 
sure. You know, one of the things I never, it's always been a mystery to me that I never understood about the outhouse is why it was a two-seater. Because <laughs> no two people I know would ever want to, like, share that experience together, right? But in spite of all of its structural imperfections, when I think about my, my greatest childhood memories, that's the place that I speak, that I think of. That's where my dad taught me to swim, to water ski, to canoe, to fish, to drive boats. We didn't have any phones in those days. There were no interruptions, just a lot of laughter, late night card games. Sometimes we'd have prayer and devotions around the fireplace. We're far from a perfect family, believe me. But honestly, I feel like my childhood was kind of like what most kids dream about. So I'll never forget the summer day when I was 14 years old. I'd been about fishing on a Saturday afternoon with my dad and my grandfather, and we came in. Dad wasn't feeling very well, and after dinner, he laid down, and I went back out to the lake to pal around with some of my buddies. But when I came home and uh, back to our cabin, my neighbor was there, Bob Peacock, waiting for me to tell me that mom had taken my dad to the hospital, and I soon discovered that he'd had a massive heart attack. Many of you know what it's like to get the news, to get the phone call. Or maybe it was a visit from the police that just changes everything. And all of a sudden, it shatters your dreams. Sooner or later in life, we all get bad news. That's how the passage begins in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, where it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, they, they lived in this village called Bethany, which was kind of like a, a suburb outside of Jerusalem. And they had developed a really tight friendship with Jesus, who would often stay with them when he traveled their way. Maybe Lazarus had had a fever, maybe he'd coughed up some blood, felt a lump somewhere, pain in his chest. It happens every day. And he went to get whatever kind of medical help there was in those days, but the doctors evidently just shook their heads and said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. And I want to pause here because while I'm confident a number, of you, a number of you are celebrating some great things in your life right now, in this season of your life, there are others of you who are really hurting right now. Maybe you've received some similar kinds of bad news. In fact, maybe you've heard someone say the very words that I heard when I was 14 years old, Gene, the one you love is sick. The one you love has had a massive heart attack. Or maybe the one you love has cancer. Or maybe the bad news was the job you love is going away. Or the boyfriend or girlfriend that you love is breaking it off. Or the dream marriage turned out to be a nightmare. Or the principal calls to talk to you about your teenager. And it's not a call to tell you that he made the honor roll, if you know what I mean. So you got some bad news. Something that's not good. Now in the middle of this scene, Jesus does something amazing. Kind of, kind of unexpected. Verse 4 of this passage says, But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No. It happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. He is saying God is going to bring glory to himself through the worst news that you could ever imagine. The thing that you would never want to happen, God's going to get glory. Now let me just summarize some of the following verses for you. Basically, everybody believes, well, then Jesus is going to come help, right? But what does Jesus do? He doesn't do anything, nothing for two full days. 
He doesn't do a thing. He just hangs out. He's miles away. There's no urgency. They're freaking out. He's hanging out. And then after a couple days, Jesus tells his disciples, we need to head back to Judea, which is the area where Bethany and Jerusalem are. Lazarus needs me. Jesus says, he's fallen asleep, and we need to go wake him up. Now, when he says Lazarus had fallen asleep, he wasn't saying that Lazarus was tired and taking a nap. He was using sleep as a metaphor to say, Lazarus is dead. We need to go raise him from the dead. Now, I want to look at three of the people in this story who have broken dreams. And maybe at some point in your life, you're going to relate to every one of these three people with what they're going through. First, let's start with Thomas, who was dealing with dreams broken by doubts. Thomas is even famous for his nickname, right? Which is Doubting Thomas, right? So we see this in verse 16. Verse 16 of the passage says, Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, everybody say Didymus. Didymus. Sounds like a bad rap singer, doesn't it? Didymus. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, and, and he's saying this like sarcastically, Let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is not like the Tony Robbins in this story. I think Eeyore is his spirit animal. (laughs) Thomas has his doubts that this is ever going to turn out good because the last time they were in this area, the religious leaders tried to kill Jesus. Now, show of hands on something at every campus, and let's all be honest, how many of you at some point in your life have wrestled with spiritual doubts? Just raise your hand. Thanks for your honesty, okay? You can put that down. Now, the rest of you can just polish your halos while I talk to real people for a moment. (laughs) Because everybody I know at some point in their life prayed a prayer and believed God could and would do something, and God didn't, and boom, they are bombarded with doubts. Why didn't God do this? Or maybe you grew up with a simple faith in God and you went to your freshman Bible lit class in college and some professor said, you know, this stuff didn't really happen. And all of a sudden you're like, didn't it? Is it it this real? Or did I just too easily embrace my parents' faith? Or you believed in God and something bad happened to you or something bad happened to someone that you love and you think if God is good and loving, why did he allow that to happen? If he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop that? And suddenly you're like Thomas. Your dreams are broken by doubts. Or maybe for you, it's not doubts that broke your dream. Maybe like Mary in our story, you have dreams broken by discouragement. Mary was so discouraged that when they all heard that Jesus was coming, her sister Martha went out to meet him, but Mary didn't. She stayed at home. She's like, why bother? Lazarus is already dead. There's nothing you can do about it now. And this is some of you right now. Your dreams have been broken by discouragement, and you're thinking there's nothing that can be done about it. I'm always going to feel alone. I'm always going to be depressed. I'm always going to be stuck in this dead-end job. I'm never going to have the marriage that I dreamed that I would have. Or maybe you relate with Martha in this story whose dreams were broken by delay. One of the things that we hate in life is we hate to wait, right? We hate to wait while Netflix is buffering. (laughs) We hate to wait for somebody to reply to our, our text message. 
I waited 56 years of my life for the Cubs to win a World Series. And 55 years of my life, my dreams were broken by delay. Verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, why does that matter? So we understand that in Martha's mind, Lazarus wasn't just mostly dead, Princess Bride fans. He was all the way dead. He was dead dead. He'd flatlined, bought the farm, kicked the bucket. He was worm food, six feet under, pushing up daisies. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, Martha says, verse 21, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. If only. It's as if she's saying, why did you delay? Why did you wait? Why didn't you come sooner? This never would have happened. If only. Every one of us has some if onlys, don't we? If only I had not said those words. If only I would made a wiser choice. If only I had told her that I loved her. If only I hadn't quit. If only I would said, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Four days after my dad's massive heart attack, it became necessary to transport him by ambulance from the small little hospital he was at in Park Rapids, Minnesota, to the big hospital, which was about 90 miles away in Fargo, North Dakota. And most of the family left to wait for the ambulance at the hospital in Fargo. But my brother Mike and I returned back to the cabin where we were going to pack a few things, gather on behalf of the rest of the family. Then we were driving to Fargo to join up with them. And so I remember being back at the cabin. We're packing, and I see a familiar car drive up the road. And it was my dad's best friend. And I'll never forget it. He gets out, and he comes up, and he puts one arm around me just like this. And he put one arm around my brother Mike just like this. And he said, boys... I've got some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is your daddy's gone to heaven today. And the bad news is he isn't with us any longer. And just like that, my dream childhood and my dream family and my dream dad is gone. And to be honest with you, when you're in a broken dream moment like that, it's hard to believe in that moment that God can bring anything good out of it, right? Everything looks bad in this story. And then notice Martha says to Jesus, verse 22, but I know that, everybody say these two words, even now. Let's say it one more time together, even now. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha looks at Jesus and says, I know that even now with dreams broken by doubts and dreams broken by discouragement and dreams broken by delay, even now God will give you whatever you ask. And some of you today, you need an even now moment. Even now, in the midst of your broken dreams, God can come into your life through the presence of His Holy Spirit and give you a peace that passes understanding. Even now, God can reach into your whacked out family and bring healing and harmony and forgiveness and restoration. Even now, in a moment where your heart may be cold and callous toward God, in just a moment, that can all change and your heart can soften and you can find yourself being drawn to God. Verses 23 and 24. 
Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Oh, yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. She responds, oh, yeah, I know that. That's what all these well-meaning friends of mine keep trying to tell me, Jesus, back at the house. But right now, it really hurts. And then Jesus utters these words, some of the most significant words that have ever been spoken in the history of the world. Verses 25 and 26, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha responds, verse 27, Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Martha then goes to the house and gets her sister Mary. Jesus had stayed outside the village closer to where Lazarus had been buried. And this is kind of a cool scene to me because here's Martha and all of, or Mary and all of her grieving friends and family members walking toward Jesus. Verse 32. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's the same statement of disappointment that her sister Martha had made. The verse continues. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Some versions translate that phrase, uh, deep anger, as deeply moved, but I like the way the New Living Version translates it here, because I think this is what it is. It was like he was thinking, man, I hate death. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, dying stinks. Being in hospice care, as caring and loving as those wonderful people are, is not exactly a picnic. And making the Funeral arrangements and standing in a receiving line at a visitation for hours is not a lot of fun. Throwing dirt on a freshly dug grave, it'll rip your heart out. And in this moment, it ripped Jesus' heart out too. Believe me, God hates death more than you do. In fact, Mary and the others are weeping and wailing, and Jesus is so moved and deeply troubled by that. Verse 35 says, then Jesus wept. And Jesus just stands there with all this emotion welling up in him, inside of him, and he, he loses it. And he's just standing, not in his stomach, swallowing hard, tears rolling down his face. Question, why do you suppose Jesus wept? Was he weeping for himself, grieving because his friend Lazarus had died? I don't think so, because, spoiler alert, he's going to raise him from the dead in a moment. Did he weep for Lazarus because he had to bring him back to life? Sorry, bro, I got to bring you back. Some scholars believe that maybe Jesus cried because of what he knows is bring, he's bringing back him back from, from this perfect place, a place where heartbreak and disease and death and evil and suffering can no longer touch us. Maybe he wept because of that. But I think the real answer is the obvious one, that Jesus wept because his friends Mary and Martha were crushed by a broken dream. And even though he knows the end of the story, when you don't know the end of the story, he weeps with you. And he feels your pain of disappointment. Jesus arrives at the tomb of Lazarus where there was this gravestone blocking the entrance. We come to verse 39. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them, but Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. 
Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. The literal King James translation of that verse is, Lord, he stinketh. (laughs) Go look at it. He is so dead, it stinketh death. I would say he's stinky. Now, if you know about Martha from the Bible, you know that she's a very meticulous hostess, right? Her last name could have been Stuart. So it's just like her to say, ooh, Jesus, I would like Ixnay on the tombstone thing because the smell is going to send everyone home and I'm totally out of Febreze and this isn't going to be good. Verse 43, then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. And the celebration begins. And it didn't take long for word of this amazing miracle to travel. And by the time it reaches Jerusalem, a few miles away, the religious leaders are getting worried. And they say, we've got to do something about Jesus. Enough stalling, enough talking. We've got to do something and do it now. You see, while Jesus delayed Lazarus' death by this miracle, he accelerated his own death. This was the catalyst. And it's just within days now that Jesus is arrested and falsely accused and convicted in a mock trial and beaten and scourged and nailed to a cross as a common criminal, dying there for your sins and for my sins. And now the body of the one who had called Lazarus from the grave, now he's trapped in his own tomb. But on Easter Sunday morning, everything changes, right? And the eyes that closed on the cross pop open in the grave. The hands that fell limp behind the nails straightened in the dark. The body that was crushed on that hill regained strength and walked out of that tomb. And he is alive, and it's why he's the greatest of all time. Amen? And today... That same Jesus is saying to you, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Question, do you believe this? Because that's the question I was wrestling with on the day that my, of my broken dream. When I got the news that my dad died, do I really believe this stuff? I'd grown up to believe in Jesus. I had accepted him at a young age. I'd been baptized. But this was the first real test of my faith. Was it my faith? Did I really believe this stuff, or was I just kind of coasting on the coattails of my mom and dad's faith? So a few hours after my dad's death, our family is grieving, and, and uh, we began making preparations for the 700-mile drive back to our home in Lincoln, Illinois, for his funeral. And my mom asked me, again, just a few hours after he died, if I would walk down the road, there was a little resort where there was a convenience store, and over the course of the summer, we'd buy milk and coffee and newspapers and things like that. And this was the old days. They would just keep a tab. Can you imagine that? They would, like, you could charge it. And so she asked me if I'd go pay it off, and I said, sure. And she gave me a wad of cash. 
And I started walking down that road that day, and it was on that road that I had an even now moment. I remember everything about that walk in vivid detail. I even remember what I was wearing. I had on a pair of plaid bell-bottoms with cuffs about this big and a maroon-colored T-shirt. I may have only been 14 years old. I had a pretty good fashion sense about myself. I remember the, the tall pine trees on each side of the road. And, you know, to be honest with you, I've not had a lot of experiences in my life where I just felt like God was speaking directly at me, but I felt like that day God was talking to me. I needed him to talk to me. And here's what I sensed him saying. I sensed him saying, Gene, what happened to your dad today is going to happen to every single person on the face of the earth. One day is going to be their last day on this planet, no matter who they are. And there's only one thing that matters on that day. Do they know my son? Do they have a relationship with him? And have they experienced his amazing grace? Unfortunately, my dad did. I know, I know where my dad's at. And I just sense God saying to me, Gene, if you'll trust me, if you'll put your hand in my hand, I'm going to use your life to help people get ready for their last day on this planet and to live every day between now and then in my power and grace. Ironically, it was out of a broken dream that God brought a new dream. It was out of my broken dream that God gave me the ability to dream again. In fact, part of the reason that you're in this church today hearing a message of hope for your life from my lips is because over 44 years ago, in my worst moment, God gave me an even now moment. And the mission and the passion and the obsession of my life is to help people like you prepare for your last day on this planet and to live every day between now and then in God's power and grace. So I just need to ask you today, are you ready for your last day? Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And, and who, he says, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Do you? Are you ready to believe this today? Would you bow your head with me? Some of you, I believe, have had a nerve struck today. And you know this could be the beginning of a new start in your life. Could be the restoring of a broken dream. And maybe it surprised you because you just tagged along here today with a friend, somebody who brought you, or you thought you were just going to another church service on Sunday at the crossing, but... But now you sense it's deeper than that. And a deeper chord has been struck. And you know you needed to be here. And you need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you need to experience life, life to the full. And maybe you're even saying right now, Gene, that's what I want for my life. I want the same hope that Jesus gave to Martha and to Mary and to Lazarus and Jesus gave to you. I want that for me. And so if that's you and you want that, would you just silently, right where you're at, just pray this prayer. God will hear it. This could be the beginning of an exciting change in your life. Just say, Lord, today I've seen my life for what it really is. 
And I don't understand all I'm feeling right now, but I do know I need you. And I'm surrendering my life today to the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his death for me on a cross, through his burial, through his resurrection. Just tell God, say, I, I know I need Jesus to restore my life and my broken dreams. I know that through him I'll find the power and life and freedom to keep going. So God, beginning today, priorities are shifting in my life. If you're praying that prayer today, would you let somebody know there's, there's cards on the seat backs in front of you that, that just say, I have decided on them. Just take a moment, fill it out when we dismiss. Let us know about the decision you've made to follow Jesus today. You could drop that card off at the commons or one of the offering boxes or next step table. And then I just want to encourage you, show you're serious about this decision, that you mean it by taking the first step that Jesus asked you to take as a follower of his and be baptized into him. And you can indicate your interest in that too on that card. God, I thank you that you've been there for me in the midst of my broken dreams at several different points in my life. And for those who are there right now, I thank you that even now, even though they have dreams broken by delay or dreams broken by discouragement or dreams that are broken by doubt right now, I thank you that even now they can trust you. And what looks like the worst moment can turn into one of the most defining moments of their lives. Thank you for those who are saying yes to Jesus today, who are making the greatest decision of their life and inviting him to be the resurrection and the life for them. And they are declaring, I believe this. God, we do declare Jesus is the greatest of all time forever and ever and ever. And we lift our prayers now to you in his name and for his sake. And everybody said, amen. God bless you, Crossing. Loved being with you today. See you next time. I'm going to hang out in the lobby if you want to say hi. Have a great week, everybody.